scripture reading today will be from John 4, 3 through 8, and 27 through 25. He left Judah and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Skychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then his disciples came back, and they were marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, the one who sows and another reaps, I sent you to reap. Good morning. Glad everybody's here uh, out with us today. We really appreciate having you here, especially uh, visitors that we have in our midst today. Today, um, we're going to be looking at John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. We won't, uh, you know, light on every verse in, the, in that chapter, but uh, kind of surveying it. And in this text, there are two overlapping uh, conversations, uh, sort of running parallel, but, but they're both intermittent, and, and they, they run kind of concurrently throughout, uh, throughout the text. The, the first one is Jesus having a conversation with this Samaritan woman, who has come out to the same well he has come out to in this little outside the village of Sychar in Samaria. The second conversation, and, and that conversation centers on water, which you might expect. They, they've come to a well. The other conversation that it sort of runs parallel but intermittently uh, throughout uh, this text is a conversation between Jesus and his disciples, which centers on food. Um, so, Think that, keep that in mind as we go through this today. But the, the setting basically is that Jesus and his disciples have arrived in Samaria, and um, they've, they've come to this, just outside this woman's village, and the disciples decide they don't have any food, so they decide to go into the town to buy food. But Jesus sits down at the village well, and here he begins that, that conversation with the Samaritan woman. She's come out to the well to fetch her water. Um, Later in the chapter, when the disciples return with food, they try to get Jesus to partake, to eat some of the food. His response, which was probably at least somewhat bewildering to them, is, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. So he, they know he doesn't have food, but he starts talking about a different kind of food. They, they probably are thinking, what, or what, they're probably thinking, what is he talking about? Maybe he's so hungry he's delusional, Right? Um, and, it, and it's at this point, uh, here in verse 31 through 35, that the two conversations that have been running sort of intermittently in parallel, you know, concurrently through this chapter, sort of merge together. 
Let's read this, verse 31 through 35 of John 4. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, so they've returned. He's at, he's at the well, the woman's there. They're urging him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. In other words, it's ready now. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. And then Jesus says to them, I sent you to reap, to harvest, to glean the things that have been planted. So as I said, the two conversations sort of merge as these alternating narratives of the woman Jesus with the woman and Jesus with the disciples both come to a head in, a, uh, in another, a third metaphor about food. So we've been talking about water. You know, it's about sustenance, the whole chapter. Water, we've been talking about getting Jesus and the disciples some food. And now Jesus changes it to the harvest, which is ultimately, especially in an agrarian world, about food. And so these two stories come together in this statement Jesus says about the harvest. And the woman has at this point become a believer. She has lost all interest in coming to the well for water. She leaves her water jar and takes off to tell her fellow townsmen in, in Sychar about this Jesus that has captured her attention and apparently her soul and her heart, her being. And these Samaritans in turn believe on Jesus. And they, it turns out in the story, are the harvest. They're the food. Jesus wants his disciples to focus not on the physical food they've been preoccupied with throughout the chapter up to this point, but on gathering in a kind of sustenance, the greater priority, the more fulfilling sustenance brought about when a harvest of human souls come home to Jesus. So that's what we're talking about here for a few minutes this morning. Jesus says to his disciples what he might say to us as well. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white with harvest. The grain is ripe. It's heavy with fruit. And he says, I sent you, my disciples, I've sent you to reap. So what we're going to talk about this morning is this question of whether we heed this charge. We're his disciples too, right? We're, we're trying to be followers of Jesus as best we can by reading his word and studying it and, and studying old things we thought we knew and, and, and studying it with each other and New thing, we go through different things in life and we come at it again, but we go back continually to the source, to the fountain. We want to be people of the book. We want to be people who are following him. Well, one of the things that his followers were taught to do over and over again was to take the message to different places. And so my question this morning for us is, are we heeding his charge to reap? Have we lifted up our eyes, as it were, to see what Jesus sees? He sees that the fields all around us are white for harvest. So we're going to talk about embracing this, this perspective that Jesus has on outreach, on going into the fields, on evangelism. And if we were to, to embrace the Lord's perspective and make it our own perspective, what would that entail? If we're going to be reapers in His harvest, what would that mean? Let me suggest some things from the text this morning. First of all, 
One of the things it means, and this may seem so obvious as to not need repeating, but you know, it's like blocking and, and tackling in football. You forget that, you're toast. Right? You're not running those fancy, awesome plays. You're not going to see the ball flying very far or the running back running through and juking and all because you can't even get it off the ground. You forgot the fundamentals, right? You're trying to cook some elaborate gourmet meal. You forgot how to turn on the oven. That's kind of a, a deal breaker, right? First of all, we've got to be people who interact. If we're taking on the, pre the, the perspective of the Lord about reaching the lost, the, the very simple and obvious fact is we've got to interact with some people. We've got to intermingle. You, you're not going to influence somebody or share something with them if you're not present with them, right? You've got to be there. So that's what I want to talk about for a few minutes this morning. There are a couple of conventions, in fact, that Jesus breaks here. He just breaks them like he often does. Uh, conventions that were considered normal and uh, obvious and self-evident, uh, that, that religiously observant, pious people, they would have thought him scandalous for breaking these conventions, and, and they would have thought this approach to trying to do any kind of religious movement would have seemed ineffective. First of all, he talks to a Samaritan. Verse 9, beginning of verse 7, actually, John 4 says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Well, that makes sense. They're in Samaria. What else is she supposed What other kind of woman is she supposed to be? That's like telling a story about an American saying an American person came up to me, you know. But she says, or Jesus says to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then there is this, I think probably an editorial com comment. Maybe she said it. You can't, there's not the parentheses and all that in the Greek. So either she says, Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans, or John is saying, because Jews obviously have no dealings with Samaritans. And there's a lot of extra biblical evidence. Josephus makes comments, about, very negative comments, about how the, the, the Jews regarded the Samaritans. This is an age-old, very visceral, but also overlaid with theology and history kind of division and prejudice. So I don't want to cast aspersions on anybody or caricature or stereotype, stereotype anybody or make any assumptions that we haven't gotten past some of the the mess that's been in our own country's history and world history in terms of humans, you know, hating and fearing and disassociating from one group or the other. But think whatever you want to right now about the, the oldest, most, uh, you know, uh, visceral, most ugly and hateful prejudice or fear between groups of people, types of people. This is going to hold a candle with that. And Jesus says, I'm going to talk to that person. That would have been scandalous. Not only was that scandalous, it was scandalous that he would talk to a woman. Verse 27, if we kind of fast forward to where the disciples come back, uh, Jesus is at the well talking to her. The disciples come back, and it says they marveled that he was talking with a woman. Rabbis talking to women, that, that's not typical. Remember the, 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 uh, the little account over in Luke chapter 10 where Mary, uh, Jesus is in the home of Mary and Martha, and Mary's sitting at his feet learning, and Martha's kind of scandalized. And we, we read that from our perspective and go, well, that's because she's doing all the work. She's getting off scot-free. Scot I just said scot-free, which is a form of group prejudice. Sorry. Sorry if you're Scots. Um, I, I, I imagine that's what that meant. But I don't, who knows? I'll, I plead ignorance on that one. Um, but remember, so it was scandalous in part because Typically, a rabbi, a teacher, set with men. Jesus just goes around breaking these things. Women carry his money in his entourage that goes on his ministries, not the men. 
Um, they're, they're funding it. Um, it's things, things like that. Um, so anyway, he talks to a woman. The, the disciples are shocked by this. They don't, they don't have the guts to say anything about it, it says. But uh, he, is, he has broken this convention. Why would Jesus do that? Let me suggest to you that he cares more about, he cares less about these conventions of what looks pious or proper or even logical, normal. Here's how you get a movement off the ground. You talk to the right people. He cares very little about that and cares much more about finding people who are hungry. Finding people who are seeking. Finding those individuals who are searching, who are longing, who are aching for something better, something else. Something that finally answers and satisfies and fulfills. People who are looking for answers. What if we always, when we talk to people about the gospel, when we do, what if we're talking to people not who are looking for answers, but people who already think they have the answers? How well is that going to go? Talking to somebody whose life just, they're pretty convinced they figured it all out. You know, you know, think themselves, they've gotten this far, and they've got money, and they've got, their kids are beautiful, and they've got possessions, and they live in the right neighborhood, and you go on and on and on. They kind of don't have a lot of questions, because life's working well for them. That person might not be as receptive to somebody whose life looks pretty broken. Jesus wants to find those people, apparently. And to use the metaphor Jesus uses with his disciples later in this very chapter, we folks, we have to go to the right kind of fields. We've got to be in the right kind of fields, the fields that have a harvest that's ripe. You know, we, we can walk through other fields where nothing's growing. There's no ripeness. There's a certain amount of alertness we should try to have and pray for. Ask God to show us these people and bring us into these places. So this is a very elementary point. I, I'm not under any delusion that right now I'm, I'm doing a rocket science point here. It's just simple, though. I think it's really important. And it's this. If we want to bring people to the Lord, we have to be, are you ready for this? Among those people. Right? We've got to be present with them. Sometimes, if we're honest, we avoid the various Samarias of our world. Samaria is the last place we're going to. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He needed to pass through Samaria, the text tells us. And maybe sometimes we're more interested in staying comfortable than in the salvation of souls. We're inter- we'd love it if somebody's saved and we're a part of that or get to watch it or somebody gets baptized here. But personally, we're, we're much more jazzed up about keeping ourselves comfortable, not feeling threatened in our theology, in our safety, with our money, with our time. We're going to stay in control. That's more important, let's be honest sometimes, than the salvation of a soul made in the image of God. we got to go into... Samaria sometimes. John chapter 4, verses 3 through 7. And I realize this is just the setting for the story, but that's kind of my point here. Let's read it here in John 4 through 7. He left Judea, he departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the the field that Jacob had given to his sons Joseph. Uh, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. This sounds just like logistics, sort of. It's just setting. But let me suggest to you, if I may, that our setting often doesn't include being near the kinds of people, for lack of a better term, who might be more open to the gospel. Maybe we need to change the setting of our lives. We've got to intermingle. We've got to interact. We've got to go into the fields. We have to hang out at the town well. 
if you will, where the thirsty people are. And so that's a simple point, but I think it's a point that the text would leave us with. Secondly, we have to connect with the people that we're intermingling with. It's not just a matter of being proximate in the same proximity, but actually make some connections. And I'm talking here about just connecting on an everyday human level, human to human. There are so many things that we share with every other human being, regardless of, of whatever your uh, you know, uh, you, you know, social class is or level of education or what your hobbies are or what your past is or what you imagine your future to be, whatever your race or ethnicity, whatever people's languages they speak, there are certain fundamental things, lots of them, that all of us are dealing with. We're all trying to make a living. We're all trying to stay healthy. We're all trying to find you know, peace and enjoyment, joy. We're all trying to rear children and put food in their mouths and make sure that they grow up you know, in a proper way that's morally grounded. And, and all of these things are human. We need to connect with other humans on an everyday human level. Jesus says in verse 7 of John 4, he's sitting at the well, this woman comes up. He's already in the presence of her. He's already intermingling. But notice what he does. He speaks to her. Did I just shock some of you under 30? Right? I'm just kidding. There's great things about people under 30. that we're. Uh, I'm kidding right now. Duh. Of course there are. There's great things about people of all ages and all cultures and everything, but I kind of think personally that this one is one that's more common in somebody my dad's age than my age and even less. I'm speaking in generalities. There's tons of studies about this, though. Younger folks today. Actually interacting with people in a, in a social environment that you don't know. Making a connection. Give me a drink. I mean, there's nothing cosmic about that, right? Give, can I have a drink? We're at a well, water, that's when we're both here. Could you hand me a drink? That's not an earth-shattering move. Or is it? This is something which might naturally come up about a, 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 at a well. He, he's talking about water. And so this is you or I deciding to, to sort of break the silence and connect with somebody. Talk about the weather. Talk about a mutual interest or hobby the latest Netflix documentary, your kid's school, your job challenges, wh whatever it is, your interests. Here's the point. Like Jesus, we need to initiate a connection with fellow human beings. And as I said, there's a lot of research, and I've, I've, I won't bore you with it, but I've got several books on this. Some of it's, there's, there's books on how we're, we're being rewired by, by cyber technology, you know, smartphones especially. And... Um, there, a lot of this research suggests that you want to help Joanna outside? Okay. Daniel's going to help Joanna, and we may, we may lift up a prayer for her when we find a little bit more what's going on in a few minutes. Yeah. Daniel, Daniel, Dr. Daniel will help you, and we'll, we'll get some more information and we'll, we'll lift up a prayer here in a few minutes together. So let me tell you, uh, just remind you of some, I think I preached on this a, a couple years ago or about a year ago. There, there's a lot of research going on now from a lot of different quarters initiated by a lot of different uh, people 
individuals, uh, think tanks, that shows that, that young adults today are connecting personally with people much less than, than adults did uh, uh, just two or three generations ago. It's, it's, re it's remarkable, actually. There's a book that came out in the late 90s called Bowling Alone before the cyber revolution had even really gotten wheels. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but I think I've quoted it before. This sociologist noticed, it was a big seller, uh, this book, how uh, people were doing all sorts of things alone that they used to do sort of in the village together. All right? Just parallel play, adult parallel play, not really interacting. So this has been going on. You can't blame it all on uh, technology, though I think that has augmented it in some ways. But how do we do this kind of stuff? How do we connect with people to talk about something very essential if we're not connecting? So this is much more a picture of a Harold Hampton who is genius at this. The guy, he knows more people in my neighborhood than I do. And I've been there 22 years. Robert Dawson was great at this too. Just never met a stranger. That, that, their, their generation, it started going away in mine a little bit. I, some of this is, I'm guilty of a lot of this, but just the ability to connect with anybody and start talking. And it's, it's not weird, at least my dad doesn't know it's weird. He keeps, <laughs> he keeps doing it. He, got, he has friends. So um, th it's more a picture of that kind of, of, of interpersonal behavior than 15 people sitting near one another in a public space, but each insulated by, you know, their noise-reducing headphones. And maybe, hey, what's the Wi-Fi password? Right? I, I know I'm overstating things a bit, but that, that's, a, that's a thing. We're not talking about something here that's not a thing. And we're, research being done, some of it by young people talking about this as a problem. So it's some, in some way, we've got to really be people who, who, who learn to interact. That might involve some of us going out of our comfort zone. But don't we go out of our comfort zone we think, uh, when we think something's important? What's more important than the topic? We will never develop rapport. We will never develop the kind of relationship capital that is necessary for sharing something so weighty, so intimate. Talking about a person's soul, their spirit, and eternity, that's pretty personal, right? There's a reason we have sayings like, hey, it's not polite to discuss politics and religion in a social, you know, you've heard that. Why do we say it with religion? Because there's nothing more fundamentally about your, yourself and your inner person than, than faith and your relationship with God. There's nothing more high stakes than the gospel of Christ. So why wouldn't we go out of our way? If it's hard for us, let's, let's work on it. Let's pray about it. Let's read books about it. Let's go through procedures that teach us new ways of social interaction because we've got to be people who connect with other people if we're going to talk to them about the gospel of Christ. Talk about water at a well as it were. Third, don't get your hopes up, there's four points, but they're short. Go deep, go deep. At some point we have to go below the superficial and broach the subject of eternity. And I, I realize we have to all, be all things to all men. Paul spends two and a half chapters of 1 Corinthians talking about that. Uh, I'm not giving license here for people to be rude or not read the room or be oblivious to what the culture, how it is, things like that. That's not the point here. Paul is very flexible in his approach to things. He always gets to the same point, the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. But he might start by quoting Greek poets one place and speaking the Hebrew language in another place. Philip the evangelist saw the eunuch on the way back from Jerusalem. What does it say? Beginning from this point, he spoke to him, Jesus. The point where he was, not where 
Philip the evangelist might have wished he were. All right, so we got to be light on our feet and, 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 and be people who are sensitive and listening a lot so that we are, 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 are you know, developing this report to go deep. But at some point, we got to get beyond just talking about water at a well, and we got to start talking about living water. Because that's what John 4 says Jesus does. Pick it up again with me now in John 4, 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For the disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Now, you back this up. Maybe Jesus asked her for a drink knowing it would be provocative that he is a Jew, Jewish male talking to a Samaritan woman, like a double you know, prejudice or a double uh, a, a distance created by two causes. And maybe he's doing that just to provoke a response. I don't know. At any rate... Jesus answered her in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Say, What? Can you imagine being in her shoes? What? Living water? So you see what he's done? He's gone from something that's very mundane and expected, two people talking about something at a well, water, but he's used that as a segue to talk about ultimate things. He's gone deeper with her. And we've got to be people, if we're going to do outreach, if we're going to spread the word, who are willing at some point to broach the subject of ultimate things. What ultimately matters? Eternity. So in chapter 4, verses 10 through 15, Jesus points her to another kind of water, the kind that quenches a deeper, more eternal kind of thirst, what he calls living water. She's intrigued. She may not be real clear on it. What's involved in that? But you can tell from the next section that she's very, her attention has been captured. Let's read this, continuing in John 4, 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Reminds me of Nicodemus, right? You've got to be born again of the water and the spirit. Nicodemus says, I can't go back in my mom's womb. When she's still halfway, uh, you know, on one side of the metaphor versus the, you know, the referent, the deeper thing that he's really pointing to. How do you get living water, she says in verse 11. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her in verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. You're just going to have to come here again tomorrow and the next day. and the, You will not find ultimate fulfilling, fulfillment in plain water. You need what he calls living water. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, verse 14, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. This kind of uh, foreshadows what he says over in John 7. about we, We're given something from the Spirit of God that goes inside us and it's its own fountain. Right? The woman said to her, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. You can tell she's sort of intrigued, sort of getting it, but not quite. That's often how it is when you first start talking about the gospel of somebody especially if their whole life has been consumed by getting regular water every day, i.e. the rat race, i.e. going to work, i.e. cleaning up messes and changing diapers and, you know, just life. But you can tell he, he's, he's made some purchase in her heart and mind here. She's intrigued. She's asking for, for more. And then Jesus goes deeper still in verses 16 and following. He peers miraculously into her life. He reveals to her her truest inner self. 
Go call your husband and come here, he says, kind of pivoting. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, bingo, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you're now with is not your husband. What you've said is true. Can you imagine this? He, 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 her life is just open. There's no, there's no uh, walls around it. There's nothing to block his vision. He can see everything. She's absolutely vulnerable, laid open before him. And she says, and what I think is some understatement, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> you think. I think you've got a divine insight into something. You think. So he's going deeper with her. And now he tells her what true worship is. It, this raises a question in her about ultimate things like God and where we worship. Remember, there's this whole Samaritan-Jew divide over where the appropriate place is. Is it in Samaria at the mountain that uh, scholars say is literally looming behind them as they're talking, probably Mount Gerizim? Or is it down in Jerusalem on Mount Zion? And so she's sort of asking about that. Our fathers, the Samaritan ancestors, worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming that neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So it, it, the Jews were right. But, but something else is coming, and in fact has come, that is going to make even that look different. The hour is coming, verse 23, it's now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. So he's shown her her real broken self, her sinful self, with her train wreck of a domestic life. The result of probably all sorts of sin on all kinds of people's parts. He's shown her what true worship is, and now he tells her who he is. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. All right, what, do we, what, what can we take away from this? We're talking about going below the surface with people, being with them, long enough to develop a rapport with them, connecting with them, so that we, at some point, at the opportune time, can go below the surface and talk about ultimate, eternal things with them. But what do we, how do we take, uh, take this and apply it? You know, I, I, I and you are not going to be able to peer into someone's life like Jesus did. But we can help people to hold their lives up to the word of, of the Lord. We're he was the incarnate word. We're we've got this word, which is his word as well. No accident, they're both called the word. And we can help people to hold their life. We can incentivize them to, to hold their life up to this mirror, which is the Bible. And, and it can show them who they truly are. You know, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, we read the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It can cut into us. It can pierce to the very... A core of our being, division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And notice the last phrase here. And the word discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. That's an interesting way to put this. That's, got, that's pretty vague to me. It was you know, sort of redolent with all sorts of possible meanings. It's like a lot of stuff in Genesis. Kind of go all sorts of directions. But one of the things it does is show us who we really are. You know, we're living life going bopping along, thinking we know what we're doing. We don't know what we're doing. We get up every day, do the same stuff, and we don't, it's not working half the time. We just do it again. 
and dare anybody to ask us to change. Oh, because you got it so figured out, right? Working so well. We don't really know what we're doing. The Bible says we don't. It's not within man that walks to direct his own footsteps. We're fundamentally flawed, right? As sinners, we, we're, we have a warped heart, a warped, uh, you know, our, our, our compass, our gyroscope is, is, is out of commission. It doesn't hew to, you know, true north. I'm, I'm mixing up all sorts of navigational metaphors here. Um, that's what happens when you leave your notes. Anyway, the scriptures tell us who we really are. Just like Jesus could look in her life and say, this is your problem. This is some of the stuff I see here that's going on with you. The Bible can do that for anybody who is patient enough and motivated enough to open their life to its pages. And we can be an agent, in the broker, in bringing those two things together, the Bible and somebody's inner life. But we've got to go deep with people. You see what I'm saying? We've got to go below the surface. Okay. The other recurrent dialogue that I, I mentioned, the one between Jesus and his disciples about food, we got to go get some food. Where are we going to get food? Jesus, you have anything? we got to get food. Food, that's, they're just food all day long. It's food. They, they, they appear here to just talk about food per, periodically in the narrative. All right? It comes to a head later in the story. The disciples return from their grocery shopping to find the woman who'd come to the well to get water, now abandoning her water jar to go tell all her fellow villagers about Jesus. She doesn't care about water anymore. She just cares about living water. The water jar is just sitting there. Just then the disciples come back, John 4, 27. They marvel that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why were you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. There's the, the ability of the word, Jesus or the word scripture, to show us our true self. Can this be the Christ? Well, they went out. They're intrigued. They came out of town and they're coming to him. And maybe wearing white robes. I read one writer who said, when he says, hey, look, the fields are white into harvest. The grain heads, you know, maybe weren't because he said it's four months off. But it might have been these droves of Samaritans with, with light colored clothing coming over the, the hill, you know, and saying, look, there's our harvest. The disciples come. They still can't get the issue of dinner out of their heads. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples are still urging him, Rabbi, eat. Food, you need food, you need sustenance. I don't know, maybe this is worth a sidebar point. Is it, are, are we like this? Are we for the lion's share of our waking hours preoccupied with the here and now matters like my next meal, my next toy? Paying the bill, retirement, uh, you know, changing the oil, mowing the grass, blah, 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 blah. Food, here and now food. Have you eaten yet? You going to eat yet? We've got to go get food. We haven't got food. Where's food? There's food, food, got food. You eating food? Food, food, food. And Jesus says, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. Sustenance words, water. Food are all over this chapter, but so is harvest, a substance word. And this is where Jesus now turns. And so these two conversations sort of merge together in this concluding point about a different kind of harvest, a different kind of substance. Uh, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Has anyone brought him something to eat, they say? Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. That's food. 
Do not say yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, lift up your eyes. See that the fields are white already for harvest. All right, so the dialogue ends up at the same place the, the one with the woman does, with Jesus pointing them to eternity. The eternity that, by the way, folks, is rapidly approaching each one of us. Some of us more rapidly than others. You know? But it will be here. Finally, when it comes to sharing the gospel with people, evangelism, outreach, we have to trust God. And I think that's implied here very much as well. I want you to think about this for a minute. How is this for an evangelistic program? What if we said as a church, here's what we're going to do. Here's our new program for outreach. What we're going to do is we're going to focus on one woman that we met or one person who, who kind of is from the shady part of town. And what we're going to do, and oh, by the way, she's got a scandalous past. We're going to just all our eggs in that basket. And so that's going to that's going to be our program. There's no real program in John 4. What there is, is Jesus, a person, talking to another person about stuff that really matters and trusting the whole business to God. God's got the program. And often the program, if we can use that word, and I'm using it just accommodatively, is a lot more organic and small scale. Than, than we, some of us, would want. Look here, John 4, 28. The woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? But look what happens. Many Samaritans from the town, verse 39, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He just talked to her initially. But she's going to talk about it because she's been transformed. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him, to, we want more of you. He stays there two days. Many more believe because of the word. Then they said to the woman, but this is just later. At first it was just her. Jesus is relying on her to share it. Now they say to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. What about us? I mean, I think sometimes we can be really impatient with action, that seems too small scale, too slow, too organic. But I want to tell you something. In the Bible, God, does He not, is it not true that God specializes in using smaller, less likely things, less obvious things to accomplish His, His big, even cosmic purposes? He uses second-born sons. Though the world followed primogeniture, they, they, they use the firstborn son. God says, I'm going to use the second. God uses barren women. He uses slave nations. He uses mangers and crosses and mustard seeds. That's, God, that's not just what he does sometimes. That's his characteristic move. It's to use unlikely small things and then just go check it out. Watch it. Watch it grow. Watch it mushroom. Watch it take off. And I think that's a point we need to take away here today, folks, is we need to trust that in God's hands, small things, small connections, small conversations, small actions of love can be very powerful. Or to use the language, the imagery of John 4, we need to trust the seed to grow. We need to trust the spring to flow. 
These are images that come out of John. Seed, harvest. The, the water, this internal spring, Jesus says, will put in you that gives you living water. We need to trust those things. Some of y'all have seen these in person because you're from California. I've seen the giant sequoias out in the middle of the state. I've never seen the coastal. These are coastal redwoods. They're the tallest things on earth. And some of them are the oldest things, among the oldest things on earth, like older than Christ by a few years, some of them. Isn't that crazy? Look at those people. And from what I've read, and some of you will come up and tell me afterwards this is true, I've read several people say you cannot capture these, these in a photo. Like, that's weak. You have to put a person, or just, if I just showed the trees there, you're just like, oh, that's, that one must be like really big, you know, like three feet of diameter. No. It's like your car. Right? And they're three, some of them are 375 feet tall. That's a football field high tree, and then another 75 feet to boot. So imagine the football field when you're at the game. Lift it up. Add 75 feet, right? And, you, and, and it's a tree. I mean, these, these are giant. And that's their seeds. They're about the size of a tomato seed. It's just a flick, a little nothing. That's what God does in nature. That's what God does with the gospel. We just need to, to be a part of that process. It, it doesn't have to be a big part. Just connect. Talk. Go deep. And trust Him. I grew up along the Mississippi River in northeast Arkansas, a county called Mississippi County because it's on the, on the river. And um, this isn't, I think this is from Louisiana, but it, it's like that roughly. I think that might be a Baton Rouge, picture, Baton Rouge picture or something like that. But once you get below, you know, St. Louis and maybe some places above there, the Mississippi River is really wide in places, miles in some places. And it, it almost looks like a lake in some places, you know, down south of where I grew up. But it's, it's a big old, a big old uh, wide, I mean, we, we call it the mighty Mississippi for a reason. And I've read that Native Americans called it the father of waters. It's the largest watershed in, in North America in terms of volume of water and all the tributaries and the whole watershed. But way upstream in Minnesota, near its source, you can rock hop across it. That's the Mississippi River. It looks like a, a trout stream in, in western North Carolina. I mean, it's like six inches deep. Same river. So I guess my point is, you know, this is upstream. It looks way different downstream in New Orleans or someplace. But folks, when it comes to evangelism and outreach, our job isn't downstream. Our job is upstream. It's not to be preoccupied with things like size and volume and making a splash and results. That's God's business. We just got to be faithful. We just got to be like Jesus. We need to go to well sometimes and talk to people about water and then have the courage and the heart and the empathy and compassion to talk to somebody about living water if they don't have it yet. And then we can sit back and watch as God's water wells up, as Jesus puts it in John 4, into the torrent that is eternal life. So, we're talking about love. We love because He first loved us. Is there anything we can possibly do as a church, as, as individual Christians, that would show a fellow human being more love 
and would, would love them the way God has loved them more than sharing the gospel with them. And there's a lot of things we could go to in the Bible to talk about that, and we will throughout the rest of the year, Lord willing. But John 4 certainly gives us some really basic points about what it looks like to be reapers working to bring in the harvest, which God's causing. We don't have to cause it. That won't work anyway. It'll feel funky and fake to people. God's doing it already. Let's be a part of that. It's beautiful. Let's take him to the spring and then let and just sit back and watch as God turns that little trickle into a torrent. That's the water. Let's let the seed be planted and make this huge harvest. That, that's, that's the food. That's the sustenance that God's bringing. And he invites us into that project, um, which shows again how, how much a God of love, uh, how much he must love us to invite little of us into that. So thanks a lot for your attention today. Um, we will now, um, uh, in a second, stand and sing a song. I, I want to say if anybody uh, needs something that we can help with, uh, we certainly are interested in helping you in, in any way that the Scriptures and the Lord would, would have us do that. Um, we're just people. Uh, we're, we're broken as well, but we, do, uh, we, are, we are trying our best. As a church, I think I can say this with confidence, to follow God. We do believe He has the answers and that He is the answer. So... Uh, if you're interested in that in some way, in a Bible study or prayer, or, or we have a baptistry, if you're ready to be baptized in Christ to begin your life with Him, become a servant of His, a Christian, whatever it is, let us know your need by coming to one of these inner chairs as together we stand and sing.